Matthew 21, just five short verses, beginning with verse 23. Matthew 21, beginning with verse 23. And when he came into the temple, and let's just stop right there for just a second and get a frame of mind because he has just cleared the temple again. In John eleven fifty five, one of the things it says, it was time for the Jews' Passover. We read about that also earlier in the book of John and realize that both times, one of them, there's, they're trying to trick him, and the second time they're trying to kill him. There's a real disaster that's formed in that word because it says it's time for the Jews' Passover. If you go to Exodus chapter 13, I'll assure you it's never spoken of as the Jews' Passover. It's the Lord's Passover. They've taken possession of something that they had no right to take possession of. It was never theirs. The Passover, those celebrations, those feasts were never theirs. So they've taken possessions of something that was rightfully God's, and because they did, they could make decisions about what would go on inside the temple. So they started selling. And two times Jesus clears the temple. That's recorded in two different places in the Scripture. He's just done it right before this passage. And it says the Pharisees were plotting to kill him trying to find a, an accusation against him, simply because they had taken possession of something that was truly not theirs. I preach this sermon in regards to this church and any other church. This is not our church. If we ever take ownership of it, then we will start deciding what happens in here. We have no right to do that. This is very much about being obedient to what he wants to build, show us what he wants to show us, to receive the truth he wants to reveal, and church is the evidence of him and not of us. But if it ever becomes our church, I promise you, we will start trying to regulate what happens in here. And the rules and the regulations in those churches get long and deep trying to regulate what happens in my church. As I shared with you before, I walked into church where I was interim pastor one time. They had a big pulpit like it's typically sitting there. And uh, I don't like those things. I'm not even sure where ours is, but tucked away somewhere. You know, when I preach, I just have to work around it. And so I walked in on that Sunday morning, and it was gone. Some people had taken it on their own to move it. They take it far away from the auditorium as they could and put it in the storage closet in the opposite corner of the church. Within one hour of church being over, it was sitting back in its place. Because you can't have church, you don't have a pulpit. That's furniture. But, I mean, it gets that particular. This is my church. In my church, we have a pulpit, and, and the preacher may not stand behind it, but he's going to put his Bible on it. He's going to use it. And it, was, uh, it, it became a big issue whether that pulpit sat there or not. And it was furniture. So he had just cleared the temple. Within a day, he's back there having no fear, no uncertainty, no questions about where he was supposed to be. When he came into the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching. And he said, by what authority dost thou these things? By what authority did you clear the temple? By what authority are you doing the things that you're doing? And then they say, and who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I and likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, whence was it, from heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, if we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, why did you not then believe him? But if we shall say of men, we fear the people for all hold John as a prophet. And they answered Jesus and says, we cannot tell. And he said unto them, neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. This is one of those moments I'd really love to just been there to watch this unfold. I'd just really like to have been there as, as, as they came to him with every intention of doing something destructive. 
doing something that was belittling and harmful and for the wisdom of Jesus to become evident again and again and again. And he could so powerfully deal with them. So when they ask him, by what authority do you do these things? We know again that in his previous visit, just a few days before, he had run out the money changers and the merchants from the temple. And now he went there to teach with no fear and no regard, totally unafraid of the religious leaders that he knew that he would encounter. It's amazing how little it takes for us to be offended in church and to not come back. It's amazing, you know, how often people change churches because of these things. And it's like Jesus has just walked in, cleared the place, did what he did. What would you certainly expect the next day? Well, first of all, you would not have expected Jesus to show up. He had no regard for the situation that had happened yesterday. He had done what he had done in obedience to God. So now he's there, totally unafraid of the religious leaders. They raised the question of Jesus' authority, and he answered by raising the question of their competency to ask such a question. So he's asking an authority question. He turned and asked them a competency question. They can't answer it. He knew that their ability to judge John the Baptist was going to be truly indicative of whether they could answer a question or not. But it was so strange because he said, if you do it, I'll, I'll answer your question. But if they would have answered the question, they would have already had the answer to the question they were asking. He would have not had to spoken at all because if they would have just answered the question that he gave, they would have answered their own question and said, I know now by whose authority that you've done this. So Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing, the baptism of John. It is a little bit strange because who is kind of the uh, living epitome of John's baptism? Jesus. Jesus is kind of that pinnacle of those whom John the Baptist baptized. So he's just asking this question. That baptism that John the Baptist was doing, where did it come from? If you're asking this question of authority, where did my authority come from? Just answer this one. This should be far easier. Where did the authority of John's baptism come? There's a piece of this that kind of, in the story, that kind of hides itself, that I can't quite figure out, and I don't guess anybody can. Because Jesus says, okay, what about this baptism of John? And Jesus was kind of that pinnacle of of John's baptism. But we've studied this enough times to know Jesus is referring to something specific. Because at his baptism, and we... If we don't get this, we are, we're going to be stuck in such immaturity in the Christian life if we don't understand this most basic thing. When John the Baptist looked at Jesus and he said, you know, I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me because John the Baptist clearly knew who he was talking to. And he's trying to get Jesus to baptize him. And Jesus says, no, I, I need to do this so that all things will be fulfilled. He's saying, I need to do this in obedience because my father's watching. But when his father saw obedience, and we've, again, we've studied this so many times, I won't go back into all the depth of it. But we know at Jesus' baptism, three things happened. The first thing that we know from these passages in John chapter 3, and every time it's recorded, the first thing that happened when Jesus came up out of the water was that his father adopted him. Based on a long-standing practice that when the father would have a child taught by tutors and by teachers and others, that when he saw obedience in the child, he would take that child into the public arena and he would adopt that child, even his, he would adopt his biological children. And he would stand and say, this is my son. 
in some cultures, they did it with, with girls as well. They would take their, the childish cloak off that a child would wear, and they would put an adult cloak on them to give them identity. And then this amazing thing is that they'd slip a ring on their finger. That ring said, whatever you press that seal into, whatever contract you seal, binds the father, not him. It would bind the father to have to pay. That's why he was looking for obedience in, this, in his child, because he didn't ever want this child to use that ring to outside the father's will. So he had to know that the child would be obedient so that whatever he bound on earth, or released on earth, or bound in heaven, was done at the will of his father and not our will. So the very first thing that would happen was he was adopted by his father. We heard it. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The second thing was that the Holy Spirit descended on him, and it remained on him. This is one of those conceptual things that's so hard to recognize that Jesus, prior to this point, did not have the Holy Spirit in him. Strange, because we would have thought, how could he not? But Jesus was 100% human. With all the frailties and all the inadequacies of humanity, yet he did not sin. But Jesus himself, so that he could minister for the next three and a half years, had to have the Holy Spirit descend on him, and he had to accept the Holy Spirit just like you and I do. So he was adopted by his father, and now he was given the authority. The Holy Spirit was the ring put on his finger so that he could hear his father's voice and he could in obedience do what his father said so that he was always functioning in his father's will. And then the third thing was he was given access to heaven. It says all of heaven was opened unto him. He was adopted, he got authority, and he gained access. Now here's Jesus saying to the Pharisees, what about this baptism of John? By what authority did it come? Because if they answered this question, it would validate Jesus' baptism. If they answered it correctly, it would not only put them in a strange position, but it would validate the baptism of Jesus and what had happened at that moment. And I guarantee some of the Pharisees were out watching when Jesus was baptized. They were witnesses to that voice. They were witnesses to what happened in that moment. They saw the Holy Spirit descend on him as a dove. So when he's standing there saying, what about this baptism of John? There's weight in this because some of those Pharisees had already seen what John the Baptist's baptism with Jesus had already done. So he asked him, what about it? So they're standing there in this strange place. Because he says, was it from heaven? Did the authority of it come from heaven? Or was it just authority that came from men? So suddenly they were in a dilemma. And it describes this dilemma very, very well. Because they're saying, well, if we uh, say it's from heaven then Jesus is going to immediately turn around and say, then why didn't you listen to him and accept me? So they know that's, they cannot give that answer. They can't give the answer that is from heaven because all of a sudden, if I say that, then everything that's been claimed will have been true. He would have said, you know, why didn't you believe the testimony that the Messiah was coming so that you would expect him and know that it was me when I arrived? But if, you, if they would say of men... They had fear of the people because the multitude had found John the Baptist in great favor. And it says in Luke 20, it says, all the people will stone us. This is an interesting passage simply because of the context of what it teaches us. But so much of what makes this passage painfully relevant to us is that we find that so much of what we try to tell the world, whether that be from the pulpit or from the testimony of our Christian lives, is held in the same uncertainty of the Pharisees. They couldn't afford to say this, and they couldn't afford to say that. So what did they say? 
they said something that was safe. They said something that was clearly in the middle of the road. Can't say this. That's too politically hot. Can't say this. It's too, too politically incorrect. I have to somehow manage to stay in the middle of the road. This is the religion and the voice of religion in that day. Sounds like church. It was, again, so interesting to watch the reactions of 10 people last night when they were hearing some of this for the first time because you could feel it. They're saying, yes, that answered something. And some of them are leaning very hard back in their chairs. You could tell it's just like, wow. And I told them, I said, I'm not asking you to agree with me. I'm asking you to be open. But it was interesting because the Christian world has taught so that everything gets flat. I'm stunned that Christian people accept it. It neither has the power to rejuvenate, it has no power to restore, it has no power to heal, so it only works well for those people who have no problems, who have no real deep emotional, mental, physical problems. The Christian world works real well for a group of people who have enough money, who have good health insurance, who don't have so many of the struggles that other people have. The teaching of the Christian world appeals to that group real well because it's flat, it's sedentary, it doesn't upset, it doesn't bother, it doesn't stir anything. So most Christian teaching is is designed to be right in the middle, not taking on those things that are difficult, the things that could upset my congregation that's in front of me because some of them might leave. My goodness, I honestly don't know how pastors do it. Because the, the general teaching of the Christian church right now is to do good and avoid evil. You can pretty well sum it up. Because this book has been reduced to telling us what to do. So it, it says these are the right things to do and these are the, the things that you're supposed to avoid. And if you follow that list pretty well, God's going to be tickled with you. And so the Christian teaching has become very, very flat. Jesus is saying to the, to the religious world right here, I just need to ask you a couple of questions because I'm going to force you to the left or to the right. If you want to know the answer from me, I'm going to make you make a choice. And they come back and says, you know, we can't do it. We can't tell. I don't know if it's, they can't tell, they won't tell. I think they could probably tell. Probably better to say they won't tell. They were crooked. They were hypocritical. It's no wonder Jesus gave them no answer. It was very evident that their difficulty in answering was that they did not want to create an enemy anywhere. They didn't care anything about what was true. So then Jesus responded and said, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. Strange dignity and strange composure that Jesus displays in this moment when he turns their question upon themselves while revealing their true hearts. God will do it over and over. I wonder how many times a day Christians carefully calculate political consequences of the answers that they're trying to give, big ways and in small ways. The interest in the clever answer, not the correct answer, not the true answer, but the clever answer, simply shows that they were more interested in the opinions of the multitude rather than to know and to follow the will of God. And again, if you look across the broad scale, most pastors in many churches are by far more concerned about the multitude's opinion. Can't make a big church if I'm not going to focus on the multitude and their opinion because I have to make it appealing to them. So Jesus didn't answer their question. If they had said of men, 
they were cowards. Because if they said of men, they feared what the men would do. They might stone them. So if they said men, they were cowards. If they said of heaven, it made them hypocrites. So they were stuck. Most of the time, when we get out of the middle, when we dare for any moment go to the edge, it will bear out the fact that what we believe is true, or it will shine this light that says if you're trying to live in the middle and suddenly you're exposed to the truth from heaven, it will almost by its nature, guaranteed, shine a light into your heart and show you the hypocrisy that's there. Show you the difference between where you stand and what God intended. And again, the only shocking part of this whole story is that what the Pharisees were doing, that we can read here and say how awful that was, is the same heart found in many, many believers trying to find the middle road so I don't have to upset anybody. And we try to find a place that doesn't disturb. And I know why most churches don't have the answers that they need. Jesus said, if if you're not willing to make a decision, I'm not going to answer your questions. So why do so many churches move without hearing, ever hearing the voice of God? Because he's saying, I'm not speaking until you choose heaven. I'm not speaking until you choose eternity, until you choose to speak the truth. So churches sit in quietness because they were trying to live in the middle. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for this, these five verses and the truth that they bring. Just the power and the reality, Lord, of what, they're, what they tell us what they expose about ourselves, what we can see in our own nature as we look at this. And I pray, Lord, that we would never be people who can live comfortably in the middle, trying to find the politically correct answer, trying to appeal to the multitude instead of just simply desiring your will, your purpose, and your way. So, Lord, I pray that you would find a very different heart in us that said, I will speak the truth, I will live the truth, I'd rather be comfortable because I live near the comforter than trying to make peace with the world who is refusing to accept you. We just speak it in Jesus' name. Amen.